is Bloomberg Surveillance. We're in trouble with these super low rates. We are causing financial instability. We're causing risk-taking. The world has a golden opportunity at the moment to achieve what I call a deflationary rebalancing. Are we in a profit recession? Yes. And remember, not all profit recessions precede actual recession. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom King. Tomorrow in Washington for Super Tuesday, we'll celebrate with uh, Bloomberg at 99.1 FM, uh, Washington and Baltimore. Looking forward uh, to that Super Monday. Uh, In this hour, we'll look at the super collapse of oil. We are thrilled to bring you in moments. Philip K. Verliger Jr., who absolutely nailed the collapse in oil. No other way uh, to, to, to put that, and we will do that uh, in a moment. Uh, our Forex Brief this morning brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best. Retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. IBKR.com. Slash Forex. Stronger yen, 113.16. Dollar stronger looking at the blended old line trading index, DXY. 98.29 is elevated. It's not a breakout. It's not like a record dollar strength, but it lifts. Sterling was 139 back under that weaker. 138.67. We'll leave it there. Brazilian real was 4.00, a little stronger, 3.97, but backed up Thursday and Friday. As well, uh, David Wilson here with an abbreviated equity look, which is unfair because you could go for like an hour. Well, there, there's always something to talk about. It's just a matter of how much on a given day. We might as well start with Berkshire Hathaway, of course, Warren Buffett's annual letter out over the weekend to Berkshire's shareholders. And from that, we know fourth quarter earnings beat analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey and Berkshire shares up 1% in early trading. Value of pharmaceuticals down 5%. The drug maker withdrew its financial forecast and will delay releasing fourth quarter results. Now, Valiant had planned to provide an overview of last quarter's performance today. And Chief Executive Michael Pearson returned from medical leave, though he stepped down as chairman. Signet Jewelers up 10%. The owner of the K Jewelers, Jared and Zales chains, reported preliminary fourth quarter earnings that beat estimates. Signet raised its dividend 18% and also lifted its cost-cutting target. MetLife will be a stock to watch. Not much change in early trading. The insurer agreeing to sell its U.S. retail advisor network to Mass Mutual for $300 million. Also on the deal front, Federal Mogul up 43%. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn offered to buy the auto parts maker's shares he doesn't already own for about $213 million. Icahn has 82% of Federal Mogul, which plan, uh, canceled a planned spinoff last month. Another deal, Console Energy up 8%. The coal and natural gas producer agreed to sell a Virginia mine and other coal reserves for $420 million. And on top of that, uh, Console suspended its dividend, which had been reduced last year mm-hmm. by 84%. NRG Energy down 7%. The biggest U.S. independent power producer cut its payout by about 80%, reported its fourth loss in the past five quarters. And lumber liquidators down 6%. The flooring seller had a bigger drop in fourth quarter sales than analysts expected. David, thank you so much. Uh, this is fun, folks. We give Gary Schilling a lot of work. Uh, because of his truly decades call on low interest rates. The Gary Schilling of oil is a guy named P.K. Verliger. He was lonely, Mike, years ago, writing about where oil was migrating to. Phil Verliger, do you feel like you got the call right, 
or was a set of events that happened so convoluted that you say, yeah, I got the call right, but it wasn't for the reasons I thought? Which is it? Can I have half and half? Yeah, I like that. Go. It, uh, well, let me, let me start by saying, uh, and I put something out today, uh, talking about how most of the oil people are from Venus, and my editor said the rest of us are from Earth. Uh, my draft had said Mars. Uh, but, yeah, I started at this uh, as an economist, and I, I am an economist, like Schilling. Uh, I, you know, I, I got to congratulate you on your interview with Stan Fisher. He was my classmate at Thank MIT, you. and when I met him 50 years ago, he was talking like a central banker. And that MIT education really set myself up and set up people like Alan Blinder and others. And so you look at these things from an economics point of view, rather than from the politics and the uh, well, the OPEC. Uh, thinking, if you look back, you look at all the other commodity agreements, and none have succeeded permanently. And you just kept looking through it, and you wondered when the Saudis were going to come to the conclusion that they were being asked to sacrifice their income to sustain higher oil prices, and when would they back out? And I think about them early in 2014, uh, I started seeing this, and I started looking at the way they were pricing, and, and I said, we're going down. And you know, to be fair, uh, Ed Morrison, uh, an old friend, saw it as well. So, I mean, it, it, it was it was obvious. Uh, but, I, I mean, the person who really saw it was one of our teachers at MIT, Maury Edelman, who tragically yeah. died two years ago. I just I wrote a long uh, article just uh, was published in the Energy Journal in December uh, talking about Edelman moments. I mean, he described what happened. We didn't. You know, we let prices get too high, just like the uh, central banks let uh, banks lend too much on housing with low interest rates, and didn't there was no governance. And the high prices of oil, uh, along with technological change and so on, just laid the the foundation for what is essentially repeating the housing cycle. It's not the Goldman Sachs people think it won't be as bad, but. The high too uh, too long a period of low interest rates, uh, subprime mortgages, and so on, led to a huge uh, housing bubble, and we're still only at 50 percent of the level of housing starts we were before. The same thing's going to happen to energy, and it's going to take five or seven or eight years to work work through it. And it just it ha- you know this it, the momentum's there, and it's very hard to stop. And uh, you know yeah. I, that's why I say half and half. I mean it's. I should have seen it earlier. Yeah, you should have, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> your your the piece you put out today, uh, energy industry for Mars mm-hmm. and the rest of us yeah. for Earth, makes a lot of comparisons to Lehman Brothers. Where are you going with that? Well, I, I've been asked to do a paper uh, uh, by the G30, uh, and uh, and I'm essentially pushing ahead, and I think that the uh, there are many parallels between what happened in housing and what happened to the whole economy between, say, 2000 and 2009. Now, they're not perfect. Uh, the housing was uh, $4 trillion debt. There was the failure by the rating agencies to properly uh, characterize these packages of mortgages. And... So, and, and nobody really dreamed that so many houses would go into foreclosure at the same time and loans would be unperforming. We only have a trillion and a half debt for the energy. So th- that makes this smaller. Uh, 
the people, you know, there's a, a question, well, we've seen oil prices fall. We've never seen housing prices fall. You know, I, I find that a, a little disingenuous because uh, two years ago people were saying $100 a barrel is the new 30 Um so, you know, I, I don't think that works. But the question is, how much more debt is there out there, and where does it lie? Uh, a lot of it is in the hands of MLPs, and a lot of stock of the MLPs, because these the MLPs have signed contracts with firms to deliver oil over long-term periods of time. And these, these contracts are... Uh, uh, Hard to break, but if a firm goes into bankruptcy yeah. and runs out of cash flow, they're not going to Okay, we're just in the time we've got left, and we'll have you on for a longer yeah, block here right. in a bit, Phil. But in the time we've got left, what is your timeline for the rest of 2016 as the industry works out? Do they wait for 2017? I think they wait for 2018. I don't think this thing really turns around until 2018. But the MLPs, Maybe in 2019, and then we're not going back up to any price levels anywhere near where we were. I think that there are. I think that this is much longer. Uh, it's just like the housing crisis. It's going to take. It could take take five years to really turn this thing around. What does that imply for the economy? Uh, not good. But the situation in the economy, the situation in Europe, the situation in China. Are, are such that that's not good for uh, for the energy sector. I mean, it, it, we're in a, a, a bad cycle. Some of the planners would call it a doom loop. It's not that bad, but I mean, you know, we're looking. If you sit and you're looking at Venezuela, uh, that country's going to fail, and you know that'll prop up oil prices for a while. But the failure of a country, of the population of Venezuela, uh, just an utter and complete collapse, like the collapse of Uganda, is. Stunning, and, and people who really haven't gotten to the uh, grabbed it yet. Phil Berger, uh, very, just never very, enough time. Uh, very, <clears throat> we gotta have him back soon. We have to get him back soon. Uh, uh, why, why you? Would you yeah. make a, a you know to have your people talk very to my soon. people to get Mr. Verliger back soon? Thank you, Phil Verliger. Um, you know, just to get your attention, his December essay, "Big Oil Nightfall Is Coming," sort of like that feels like. Game six of season of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Season six of Game of Thrones. I'm not speaking. Did you notice I'm not speaking clearly today? Yeah, I noticed that. You're all excited. I just I, I, I stayed watched, up late for I the stayed, Oscars. Stayed too much Brie, too many Chardonnay. Yes, yes. Too much Oscars. Futures up too. Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you. Donald Trump is clarifying comments he made over the weekend when he claimed to know nothing about former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. Today, Trump tells NBC's Today that he could not clearly hear the questions posed by CNN because he was given a very bad earpiece, and he says he denounced Duke on Facebook and Twitter all weekend. Other candidates have accused Trump of refusing to reject Duke's endorsement. Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are doing some last-minute campaigning before tomorrow's Super Tuesday primaries in southern states. Both Sanders and Clinton will campaign in several states, also in Massachusetts today. Sanders will also be in Minnesota. Sanders has raised more than $36 million in February. Spotlight won Best Picture at the Oscars last night. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. More than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael, thanks so much. Green on the screen on oil, 32.99 on West Texas Intermediate. Don't forget tomorrow, Michael McKee and Tom Keenan, Washington. Bloomberg Surveillance.
Market Drivers, brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. stock index futures, they're little changed following a second weekly gain for the S&P 500. And this is after erasing losses as China's central bank stepped up efforts to cushion the country's economic slowdown. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures up two points now. Dow E-mini futures up 10. And Nasdaq E-mini futures little changed. DAX in Germany's down 7 tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury little change. Yield 1.76 percent. NYMEX crude oil up 1.1 percent or 34 cents to 33.13 a barrel. Comex gold up 8 tenths percent or $9.60 to 12.30 an ounce. The euro, $1.0882. The yen, 113.08. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. It is 9.18 on Wall Street, which means we could go to 11.22 this morning with a former chairman of the SEC, Arthur Levitt. Arthur, I thought your note this morning was brilliant and really affects so many people. Let's start with the empty chairs at the SEC. Are you kidding me? There's three commissioners, and that includes the chairman? That's true. And uh, there was a time when I was there that we had only one commissioner plus the chairman. So they, so, go, down to, they go down to Ben's Chili Dog on U Street and they can take a booth? <laughs> you could really argue, Tom, that the commission might operate even more effectively with fewer commissioners because the commissioners have become so politicized that they spend more time debating issues than acting on issues. So... I don't think that's necessarily a crippling okay. condition for them. Well, it depends who, who's left and how the, good they are. The SEC, not the only uh, agency that is shorthanded, of course. Uh, the Federal Reserve, at the center of everything right now, is down two members. And uh, the good senator from Alabama uh, deciding, uh, who runs uh, the banking committee, uh, deciding he does not want to hold hearings. I know he's in a life and life or death primary that takes place tomorrow and he's focusing everything he can and he's being criticized for being inadequately conservative by uh, a man with a very good war record. Uh, So he's in a tight primary and And he's not about to do anything that could disrupt that one that's, way or that, the other. That's the amazing thing to me, that the, the Federal Reserve could be two uh, members short, and, and they have been nominated for some months, and he basically said, I have a primary. I don't want to give my opponent any um, any uh, weapons. So um, Senator Shelby says, I'm not going to do my job. I'm going to block myself from doing my job. And so I'm curious. When you were in that situation, what do the legislators say to you? Do they say our naked political ambition is going to keep your agency short, or do they make excuses? It was a different reason then. They were really not thinking too much about the SEC at that point. They had other issues in terms of the economy, and frankly, I wasn't pressing them. 
I had one other commissioner, uh, happened to be a Democratic commissioner, so it was a totally Democratic environment, uh, and I was pleased to have it that way because we were able to get through more things than we could have had we had a full commission. Not that we were divided politically or ideologically. Uh, we were divided only in terms of uh, philosophy, but we could act a lot faster with one commissioner plus the put out of the Congress very much at all. Yeah. Little technical difficulties there well, with, it, with it, Arthur Levitt. If, if Arthur, are you still there? <clears throat> Very much here. Okay. We, okay. we technically lost you for a moment. I just wanted to follow up quickly and ask you what the legal implications of having only two commissioners would be. I mean, well, can you th- act, can you pass, uh, you know, regulations? That's very difficult because what that opens you up to challenges. And uh, on a really serious matter where the issue is divided and uh, perhaps complex, you don't want to act on that with only two commissioners because it doesn't have the strength, the power, and the direction that you would have with a full five-commissioner complement, particularly if they all act together. And in those days, we tended to have unanimous votes more often than not, believe it or not. Arthur, just because of time, let's focus on one of your good concepts uh, this morning. Uh, One is that finally, on a trade, we will see the markup. The number of global Wall Street people driving off the road right now chuckling is off the chart. How do you audit and account for a markup on a bond transaction or a sophisticated commodity or derivatives transaction? Well, the the purpose of what uh, FINRA is doing and the SEC will endorse is when a firm takes in uh, a bond, either resulting from an order or just inventory, and passes it out again to charge an unthinkable commission on it and not let the buyer know about it is just dead wrong. What the commission is saying now is put it right on the confirmation that this is what it cost the firm and this is what it's costing you, Here's your markup, and I think that's long overdue. The bond markets have been unusually opaque for much too long, and I think this is a good proposal by FINRA, and I think the commission should act upon it as quickly as possible. Arthur Levitt, not enough time today. We'll do this again with an important note. He's the former chairman of the SEC. When you get the markets open, um, I, I'm going to call it a churn day, Mike. The one thing I would focus on besides dollar strength and sort of a renewed bout, not near uh, resistance, uh, but a stronger dollar all in all, is <clears throat> just the weight on, on German yields is the, the country of Europe is, is stark. The German tenure point zero point one one five. It was a zero point one zero earlier. Is is I, I don't know. I, I guess there's elites that could rationalize that as a good thing. I can't get there. Yeah, they're reacting to the to the weak inflation numbers that suggest the ECB will do more, uh, go more negative. Yeah. Program note: Tomorrow, Michael McKee and I, after chowing down Ben's chili dog tonight, executive conference at Ben's Chili Dog, Washington. We will be with you tomorrow, Super Tuesday from Washington. This is Bloomberg Surveillance.
Counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the refined Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland. It continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Jeep, the official vehicle of Killington Resort. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. It's 930 on Wall Street. Good morning. I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keene and Michael McKee. And the opening bell is brought to you by SEI. Have evolving investor and regulatory demands affected your investment firm's operational readiness? Imagine transforming your business with SEI's global platform at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks lower at the open. The S&P 500 down a tenth of a percent or two points to 1945. Dow Jones Industrial Average down a tenth of a percent or 12 points to 16,627. And the Nasdaq's down a tenth of a percent or five points to 45.84. Ten-year Treasury up 132nd, the yield 1.75 percent, yield on the two-year 0.81 percent. NYMEX crude oil up 1.4 percent or 45 cents to 33.24 a barrel. COMEX gold up nine tenths percent or ten dollars fifty cents to 12.31 an ounce. The euro a dollar 0881, the yen 113.08. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Time for surveillance correction, folks. My folks, Pa Michael McKee, catching it. Is only Michael McKee. I can. I said Ben's Chili Dog, their 58th year in August. Ben's Chili Bowl. I, I just, that's all I have is the chili dogs when I go. They're going to look at you when you get there and say, you're not from here. Exactly. Ben's Chili Bowl. Ben's well, chili they bowl. say that. When I do walk in the door, they sort of chuckle. The thing that's amazing to me about it is that this, as you say, 58 years, uh, it's been on U Street, and uh, now they have expanded over the last couple of years. They even have an outlet at, at, uh, yeah. at National Airport. Yeah. yeah. So um, congratulations to them on their business yeah. success. Maybe tomorrow I'll actually pronounce the Washington stuff right. Good morning, uh, Bloomberg 99.1 FM. Michael McKee introduced her important guest. She slept in this morning, came to us later than normal because she watched every tick of the Oscars right to the bloody end. What lies. <laughs> what li- You're going to have another correction soon, Tom. <laughs> well, it's, if Donald Trump can say what he says, Tom can, <laughs> yeah, Tom Tom can make up stuff about what you did last <laughs> night. <laughs> did you watch the Oscars? I didn't. I'm one of those really annoying uh, cord-cutting millennials, so um, I did not. I, I watched it on, unfold on social media. Ah, well, I didn't watch either, but I uh, was glad to see that uh, Spotlight won. It was a good movie. Good so, for journalism. Good for journalism. It showed what it's really like, especially if you have um, an actor who looks like you. Um, that's <laughs> the amazing thing. Have you seen the pictures of the real people versus the actors? I haven't, actually. Leif Schreiber and uh, Marty Baron look exactly alike. Really? Exactly alike. I did watch the movie for the first time on Friday, and i got to say it nailed um, some of the wardrobe choices of journalists quite well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We're (laughs) sitting here looking like that right now. Um, Notes that have come in that you have been following, uh, one uh, that you highlight caught my eye today as well, and that uh, is from Tom Porcelli at uh, uh, RBC. They note the Fed is data-dependent, and if the Fed is data-dependent, the Fed 
should be raising rates in March. Indeed. I mean, in theory, the Fed is data dependent, right? They went through great, great pains to convince the market before the December rate rise that they were data dependent, that inflation and unemployment were trending towards their goals. And now, if anything, the improvement in both those things has really accelerated. And yet uh, they are doing a sort of a reverse ferret in British journalism speak and trying to convince the markets that March isn't necessarily on the table. A what? A reverse ferret. Reverse ferret. Come on. You, wow. You've never heard that term? No. They've done an about face. Well, but a reverse ferret. Where does that come from? What's the etymology of that one? I think it's a British tabloid speak. You know, you, you Calvin kind of, McKenzie at the Sun. Yeah. He you know, did, you stick a ferret like on 14, someone. 1412. Yeah. Hey, we were talking about journalism. <laughs> But I think this is an important idea for markets and investors to get their head around. And this maybe accounts for some of the confusion that we've seen from various people about where the Fed is headed. Well, anyway, uh, the the Fed is not probably going to raise rates in March because um, the important thing now becomes not what the data are, but what the Fed is telling people. Right. It is almost March. And unless they immediately start setting the markets up for a rate increase, it's almost too late. They have two weeks to uh, prepare people, but it looks very unlikely yeah. that they're going to do that. You have a wonderful idea, which, which for me is a personal note, in that certain members of my childhood household linked the markets directly to presidential aspirations, which I have always struggled with. Somebody better than smart, Dominique Constant at Deutsche Bank, reviews this. I'm, yes. I'm fascinated, Tracy. What he and you think is analysis of presidential outcomes germane to what our markets do? I think it's an excellent question. I mean, I have to say, I've heard a lot of people over the past couple of weeks talking about the impact of presidents on markets. I haven't seen a lot of salient analysis of what the outcomes actually mean for investors. Deutsche Bank takes a stab at it. Yeah. It's all very, very general. You know, it's stuff like we could see expansionary uh, fiscal stimulus under Clinton. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a bit more for trade protectionism. Uh, there's health care issues around both Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. Um, it's not really surprising. I think it's really, really hard to tease out what markets are going to do based on really disparate candidates and really disparate policies that aren't. It's a little, Any close it's to a little set early stone. because we don't have official nominees yet. And certainly yeah. on the Republican side, uh, they may be getting that way, but there's still some viable possibilities for others. And on the Democratic side, um, you, know, it, you have to consider whether or not a Republican – Congress, mm. if it remains the same, would allow anything to happen. So There are so many moving parts here. It really reminds me of, do you remember in 2011 at the start of the Eurozone crisis when everyone suddenly had to become a sort of geopolitical commentator? We had to find where Greece was. Right. We had to do that first. And then we had to familiarize ourselves with the you know, minute workings of uh, EU politics. It feels like we're heading towards that point in the U.S. I'm not sure it's actually that useful. What else did you see this weekend? Off the path. Forget about your published note. What did you see this weekend that struck you? Uh, Besides the the, the wave of of Super Tuesday Trump slash Trump essays. Um, You know, we're seeing some interesting things in the credit market again. 
for instance, we've seen some really interesting price action on collateralized loan obligations. Some of those getting hammered. Yeah, hammered. So, yeah. for instance, yeah. we saw – Morgan Stanley had an important note on this. There's one C- – and you have to remember, these are things that investors bought up because they had juicy yields over yeah. the past couple of yeah. years. Yeah. Now the shock. Now the bottom's kind of falling out. We saw one CLO. It's held on the books by a certain mutual fund at $85. Right. And we saw a BWIC process for it, a bid basically, where it probably traded in the mid-60s. So that's a pretty big yeah. uh, decline in the space yeah. of two months. This is one of those things that people thought they could market time, right? We can get the yield and then we can dump it when it looks bad. Yeah, and it turns out everyone what, wants to do that, right? Just, just quickly here, what is the what is the tend of research and smart people saying this is like 2008 slash the big short or B, no, it's not? What's that zeitgeist right now? Uh, the zeitgeist is definitely that people are talking about it. The zeitgeist is that we are probably not heading for a 2008-style situation because leverage levels are lower, banks yeah. are supposedly safer, and the amount of outstanding energy-related debt should be relatively confined. Of course, what everyone tends to forget is before 2008, we heard very similar arguments when it came to mortgages and subprime. The problem okay. with 2008 was that <clears throat> all the leverage was hidden right. and unexpected. Uh, in Brooklyn, that, that place in Williamsburg, that bar that you take me to where we hear great music, reverse ferrets playing there <laughs> Thursday night, I think. Okay. Tracy Alloway. You, uh, you note that uh, <clears throat> YUN, you're crack producer has forwarded we'll have to get to this after the break uh, uh, the definition of a reverse ferret very good uh, YU is all over that of course yeah. don't say I, n- I never teach you anything interesting right? $480,000 of tuition at NYU uh, where are we here futures uh, the market open negative 5 right now alright time to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Donald Trump says he was given a very bad earpiece and could not clearly hear the question posed by CNN when asked about former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke giving Trump his support. This morning, Trump tells NBC's Today that he denounced Duke on Facebook and Twitter all weekend. Well, I know who he is, but I never met David Duke. So when you talk about it, I never met David Duke. Meanwhile, a new CNN poll shows Donald Trump has 49% of voter support among Republicans. Marco Rubio has 16%. Ted Cruz has 15%. For the Democrats, Hillary Clinton has 55%. Bernie Sanders has 38%. The phone poll of more than 1,000 adults was taken from February 24th through the 27th. And as a margin of error, a plus or a minus five points. Meanwhile, Sanders' presidential campaign has raised more than $36 million in February and is pushing his supporters to help him top $40 million for the month by the end of the day. An Army staff sergeant accused of killing his wife and a Northern Virginia police officer is scheduled to appear in court for an arraignment today. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? And Michael, thanks so much. The two-year yield, U.S. two-year yield, 0.81%. That's actually a buoyant number, 0.81%, leading to curve flattening. 94 basis points and a solid 2.3 basis points today. All you need to know, curve flatter, bank profits tough. Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more.
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. The S&P 500 is lower this morning on the last trading day of the month. It follows a second weekly gain for the S&P, and it comes as China's central bank stepped up efforts to cushion the country's economic slowdown. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 down a tenth of a percent or two points to 1945. Dow Jones Industrial Average down a tenth of a percent or 15 points to 16,624. The Nasdaq is little changed. It's up two points to 45. 93. 10-year Treasury of 5.30 seconds. The yield 1.74%. The yield on the two-year 0.80%. NYMEX crude oil up one and a quarter percent, or 42 cents to 33.20 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1.2%, or 14 dollars to 12.34.40 an ounce. The euro a dollar 0.887. The yen 112.93. Signet Jewelers is the best performer in the S&P 500 this morning with the ticker SIG. Signet's fourth quarter preliminary profit beating analyst estimates. It raised its quarterly dividend at 26 cents from 22 cents, and shares are up 11.5% today. Federal Mogul Holdings' largest shareholder, activist investor Carl Icahn, offering to buy the remaining 18% of the auto parts maker for $7 a share in a move that would consolidate the automotive interests of Icahn Enterprises. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen Mosco, thank you very much. Brad DeLong was the, uh, once uh, was the uh, chief economist at the Treasury Department. He's now a professor at the University of California at Berkeley. And along with Stephen S. Cohen, has written a new book called Concrete Economics, The Hamilton Approach to Economic Growth and Policy. And the basic underlying tenet of the book, which um, comes out at perfectly timed for the middle of a presidential campaign, Brad, is that... Uh, Government in the U.S. in the past has been highly or largely responsible for opening up what you call a new economic space, doing what was needed to enable and encourage entrepreneurs. The government has always been, you argue, part of the what we think of as the invisible hand free market without people realizing it. It was an accepted thing, and it no longer is. Yes. Well, I think... I'd say if we have people to take one, two words away from our book, it is concrete and pragmatic that whenever the U.S. economy has gotten into trouble, it's because the political system has grabbed on for some one particular ideology and has begun judging economic policy by whether it fits that particular ideology rather than whether it happens to work in that particular time, at that particular place, for that particular situation. What does it mean for the government to be involved? I can hear people saying, you don't mean the government should pick winners and losers. Well, the government's very lousy at picking winners and losers. But if there actually is a big winner um, that it's clear could use a lot of support and could benefit the economy enormously by doing so, um, why let an ideological aversion to something that is a rule of thumb kind of stand in your way? No. That while the government doesn't tend to do a good job of picking winners, America does have a lot mm-hmm. of winners and attempts to get in their way, um, or even policies that unintentionally get in their way. 
would seem from a pragmatic point of view to be pretty stupid, wouldn't they? Yeah, right along with us from Berkeley, uh, and, and again, thrilled to have him on and support a yeah. concrete economics. Brad, is, is always on your website, you shock and awe. People would never suggest you say, read William Easterly of NYU, The Elusive Quest for Growth. Yeah. And is in the next line, you say, read Skidelsky, two volumes on John yeah. uh, Maynard Keynes, and I've been trumping yeah. Skidelsky. Yes. I, I, uh-huh. look at, I look at this, Brad, and to go to page 186 of your lovely short book, you talk about our leading shrink sector. What does Neil Kashkari get right about holding an important uh, seminar and thought moment to actually discuss what do we do to shrink our banks? Where are you in that debate? Um, I'm scared of having a huge number of very small banks that because they all talk to each other and because they all subject to groupthink, take on the same amount of systemic risk that one big bank does. Um, and yet when a bunch of small banks get into trouble, dealing with them all at once is harder than dealing with one big bank. I think the key is when you do shrink the banks, make sure that you shrink the banks in such a way that they bet against each other. Um, that they have incentives, different banks and different sectors have incentives to do different things rather than all heading over a cliff like lemmings in one big herd. And I think that Kaskari's um, call for shrinking too big to fail banks down um, is very good, but that attention has to be paid to the culture and to the incentives um, to actually split them up so that they bet against each other rather than all going in the same direction and then relying on the government to bail them all out collectively because it can't let them all fail. What is the Hamilton approach to economic growth? Um, Steve Cohen and I say that it is ruthless pragmatism, right? um, that Hamilton was happy to quote Adam Smith, um, and he was happy to say Adam Smith was wrong. Hamilton was happy to let entrepreneurs do their thing, um, but he was also very happy to have the government step in um, and do stuff where he thought entrepreneurs were likely to fail. And he was also extremely happy to try to make sure that government policy was crafted in such a way to provide the potential entrepreneurs who we saw as America's urban manufacturing financially sophisticated future, um, get space to operate, even in a world in which it looked as if British providers were much more efficient at those particular sets of business right then and now. You know, I mean, Jefferson didn't like cities. Um, Jefferson didn't like manufacturers. Jefferson really didn't like financiers. Um, Jefferson thought we should all be a bunch of farmers. Um, and rely on London for finance and on Manchester for manufactured goods. And otherwise, as you know, a democracy of yeoman farmers live our happy life. Um, and that would not have created the America we've seen over the past few centuries. Well, we have talked about Tom Keene in, uh, you know, overalls, uh, Green yeah. Acres. Um, mm-hmm. Give us an example, though, of how the government, so we can understand what you're talking about, how the government could act today on what uh, to produce what outcome? Oh, well, the big, the biggest, or one of the biggest post-World War II examples 
Although one thing now I'm ambivalent about is the interstate <clears throat> highway. Um, if you want to provide an enormous subsidy um, to trucking and suburbanization and to a more flexible, uh, more individualistic, less streetcar, more space for kids to run around and play in yards civilization, um, it would be that. Mm-hmm. And we were the leaders in building such a huge highway system. <clears throat> um, and over the past right. 60 years, pretty much everyone else has looked at it and said, hmm, we need to do this too, maybe not on such a right. huge scale. Brad, but still, that it's a good thing. Brad, because of time, um, I, I want to get to page 86, which I think is so important. DeLong and Cohen on the long age of Eisenhower, and of course, uh, Dr. DeLong mentions that uh, with the infrastructure uh, project of the uh, the 50s. Unlike now, comma, they were smartly defeated by Ike and the moderate middle class focused corporate Republicans, the establishment. Brad DeLong, where are those people today? I don't know. I keep looking for them and telling them to come out of their hole um, and actually kind of play in American politics. Um, to some degree, they're there, but have been making tactical say, maneuvers to try to appease their base that votes in primary. Um, but if you remember back in 2009, Obamacare took the shape that it did because the White House said if we cleave as closely as possible to what um, Mitt Romney had done in Massachusetts to Romney care, um, Republicans can hardly be in block opposition to this thing because it is the signature social policy initiative of the guy who's going to be their 2012 candidate. Um, and yet Republicans went into block opposition, and Mitt Romney was reduced to splitting the mm. finest of fine hairs by saying Romney care is great, but states that do not like it should have the option right. to do other things. And as it is, even though the Federal Reserve, the federal government does have the uncontested power to regulate interstate commerce, it's in some sense illegitimate for the federal government to use this power right. to regulate health insurance yeah. in a way that I did when I was in Massachusetts and that worked okay. very, very well. Okay, Brad, we're going to have to jump. that's an ideological, right? That's an ideological statement on Romney's part. Right. And I think a very unconvincing Okay. Brad, thank you so much. In support of Concrete Economics, a wonderful short read. Stephen S. Cohen and Jay Bradford uh, DeLong, uh, it is uh, most interesting, particularly on another time and place for American fiscal economics. Tomorrow from Washington, this is Bloomberg Surveillance.